Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Brilliant. In the future, humanity will travel to space and settle many new worlds and new frontiers, but where will the first settlement be? Welcome back to another episode of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. Today on SFIA we will be looking at the concept of our first space settlement, and to do that we need to start by discussing what a space settlement is, and also what it is not. For instance, the International Space Station is not a space settlement, neither were the Apollo missions. Also, while New York City was founded as a settlement in 1624, or New Amsterdam as it was called then, we wouldn't think of modern New York as a settlement. Between those obvious extremes, we have to be a bit arbitrary in setting up a guideline for what qualifies and where, and even when. Now what we really mean when we say space settlement does not merely apply to settlements that are freely floating in space, but also to settlements on or orbiting other planets and moons. As a settlement on Mars or the Moon count, but those are not in space, except where we are using space to mean not Earth, and we will be contemplating today whether or not that first space settlement will be on a rocky body or flea floating in orbit of Earth or at one of our Sun's Lagrange points. Indeed it could easily be none of the above too. It might be on Venus, or a near-Earth asteroid for instance, or it might be an interplanetary cycler a large spaceship and space station hybrid that runs on a long elliptical orbit past two planets, like Earth and Mars, to allow smaller ships to dock and undock for the short journey between the planets and the cycler. Now such a cycler would seem a likely enough space settlement, they allow large fuel savings for interplanetary trips and great safety from radiation, and better onboard facilities for trips but we usually assume it wouldn't be the first space settlement because to serve any purpose there is presumably a settlement on the other destination planets already. However in a case like this you might launch the cycler in order to bring the first settlement to Mars, or Venus for that matter, and thus end up predating that first planetary settlement. Possibly by some trips too, as earlier cycles might be for dumping off cargo, robots, or surveyors who aren't remaining. We also don't know they'll be carrying settlers yet, they might be carrying multiple missions aiming to establish temporary research outposts at multiple spots on Mars or its moons. We need to contemplate what the difference between an outpost and a settlement is. In that same way, we might build a space station to simulate Martian gravity in orbit of Earth where we can easily monitor effects and recall people if there's a problem. This isn't necessarily a settlement, but in order to do its job it needs folks living there for extended periods of time to see how that spin-simulated lower gravity impacts humans and other organisms over many months or years. You could have some test subjects there but it would tend to make more sense to have them performing other jobs or missions. And that might be something like hotel staff for a space hotel with changing occupants, making some money while they themselves basically wore its settlers. A lot of settlements historically did have very transient populations and many a small pioneering town was really just a waypoint for other people whose population was focused on seeing to their needs. 
Pioneer is looking to set up isolated farms and mining towns, supplying mining gear and ways to spend their money were certainly common enough in American history and could easily see their equivalents with asteroid miners and prospectors. So today we are trying to make an educated guess at what our very first space settlement is going to be like, but we'll have a few other strong contenders and often they'll be the ones that become something like the first of that type of settlement. Maybe it's the 6th, 7th, or 100th space settlement built, but it's the first to occupy a major niche, like mining a comet for volatiles. There's a lot of options to cover so we'll be here for a bit and you might want to grab a drink and a snack, and don't forget to hit those like and subscribe buttons while you're at it. We'll start by talking about where and what for, then shift to what sort of features the settlement has, and protracted conversation or not, we will still be summarizing a lot so I will reference some other episodes like Mars Force vs Moon Force for why one might be better than the other, or our various Moon and Mars colonization episodes for more of the deep dive details on many options. However, the first thing we need to decide is what qualifies as a settlement. Is it some singular feature like permanent residency or children being born there? What is a settlement anyway and how does it differ from a colony? A settlement is a place where people settle, colony usually refers to a settlement overseas where the settlers impose their own culture and forms of government. Dictionary definitions are often less useful for discussions of the future than one would expect as they are often very rooted in modern context and have big problems with technicalities that turn out to matter when the circumstances change. Nonetheless it is a good starting point and a settlement is a place where people settle, colony usually refers to a settlement overseas or presumably in space, where a new community is being formed rather than someone just migrating to an existing one. I'm not really a settler if I move to Tokyo, unless I and others are establishing some culturally or politically distinct entity in or near it, an ethnic district of a larger city might qualify for instance. Now there are no known existing civilizations in space, with regards to normal colonialism concepts, to translate onto, but we should at least acknowledge that one way we might get a first space settlement is for aliens to show up and offer to help us build one, or establish a modest community on one of their worlds, or a space habitat inside one of their habitat conglomerations, or maybe a virtual world on one of their planet-sized computers which would raise an interesting point about if virtual settlements are possible and would count. Also we are emphasizing space settlement in the sense of needing to travel through space to reach it, as on the off chance we discover some sort of gateway machine that lets us just step to another planet as is popular in science fiction, with great examples including the Stargate franchise and Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga, then we might be able to step directly to other worlds, and those might be inhabited by other life already. This isn't very likely but we always want to beware of too many assumptions when discussing the future. In the absence of an approach like that, of simply being able to step from Earth to the surface of another planet, we presumably can assume the major problems of colonialism in terms of indigenous populations will not be a concern for at least some millennium to come. Alternatively, the implication is that if a space habitat is orbiting Earth, a settlement that is not on Earth but is orbiting Earth rather than on Mars or some other celestial body, then that can be classified as a space settlement but maybe not a colony, as it's still tied to Earth. That is certainly a debatable point but its proximity doesn't really necessitate or imply much separation. 
in that same thread of thought, separation or self-sufficiency might be good attributes, as might the desire for permanency. For today, we will stick principally with the idea of a settlement being a place where multiple people settle down, with an implication of seeking permanency, and I would say in one spot, but something orbiting a planet or constantly shifty in terms of distance and direction relative to Earth, like Mars, is rather stressing that point. I think you could make a very strong and non-semantic argument that a big generation Hulk ship is a settlement even if it is intended to be temporary till you reach another solar system, simply because it contemplates a community existing on that ship itself for lifetimes, as opposed to the Mayflower carrying the Pilgrims as colonists to Plymouth. Notes from that journey make it clear that many of the passengers felt like it was a lifetime, not 66 days, and they counted it a miracle only one person had their lifetime end during the voyage. But 66 days is not 66 years, or 666 years, and those are the timelines we envision as a basic minimum for interstellar colonial generation ships that use technology that we know with near certainty is not prohibited by the known laws of physics. So we wouldn't include the ship carrying settlers to Mars or astronauts going there with the intent to come back, unless they got stranded and survived for a significant length of time. By that same reasoning though, an interstellar cyclor being a bit of a combination of cruise ship, freighter, ferry, and spaceport could easily be considered a permanent colony in spite of its mobility being its principal purpose. And an asteroid belt mining town might be a ship too, one making a long and ever-changing circuit past various mining outposts to buy mined metals and sell spare parts, food, and relaxation. Earth itself is not stationary and we all spin around its surface, but our map internally doesn't change except on generational and geological timescales, so while we wouldn't think of a big ship as a settlement here on Earth precisely because it did move, and thus isn't settling down, we probably have to be more reserved in that usage here. Mobile artificial islands or floating cities might force us to revisit that even on Earth. We also cannot say self-sufficiency is the difference between a settlement and an outpost. Historically a lot of settlements, especially the successful ones, were actively involved in trade from their inception or were actively subsidized, or even intentionally kept in need of some specific resource to help maintain dependency. So we cannot point to something that is solely a space hotel, that grows its own food and hydroponics and recycles its water and air with those plants and say, for space settlement. Self-sufficiency definitely is a strong forced settlement candidate, as opposed to people living there for their whole life. The nature of something that is solely a space hotel is people coming and going constantly, not a handful of folks showing up for one specific job or for a specific mission duration, and that's something to keep in mind. We imagine enormous space habitats but this happens later, and it implies that either we've got a ton of work for folks to do up there, or we're out of room on Earth which is many centuries off at least, see our episodes Megacities, Can Earth Support a Trillion People, and Ecumenopolis Planet Wide City for Why. Well what work? What do people do up there that has to be done there because it is either safer, cheaper, or better, and that requires them to want a settlement? Fixing satellites implies a lot of movement, you fix one and move on, and in a lot of cases it is going to be easier to send a new one up or even just send the repair crew up and back down again rather than maintain a space station that those repair crews live on, especially with the implication of permanency and having families. 
Even then, a satellite repair facility is likely to be fully docked and using robots rather than people, and operated remotely by people down on Earth, as it would obviously be cheaper. Now, signal lag makes doing intricate repairs via remote-controlled robots tricky on the moon, and this might apply to distant geostationary satellites too, which is a lot of them, so maybe this would justify a standing human crew. Orbital weapons platforms might require them too. I tend to feel those are inevitable and in this century, regardless of what current treaties might permit, but I could also imagine new treaties requiring a human be at the switch, especially early on, and that might require being on site rather than at a switch at a remote bunker. But those would seem more like the equivalent of one of our missile silos out in North Dakota or one of our Ohio-class sleeper subs rather than something like an old army outpost on the frontier. There were many of those and they often developed into towns as time went on, indeed an awful lot of great cities were once frontier military forts, however those usually imply someone is living there that requires a military fort. So probably not a forced settlement sort of thing, barring us finding aliens in the solar system anyway, and this could include non-intelligent ones like giant sandworms or big tentacle monsters in the subsurface oceans of Europa or naturally blimp-like floating whales in the skies of Jupiter or Venus. This is another example of how a settlement might be moving, floating around the sky or seas, and I don't know if there's enough of a difference between settlers and nomads to make it worth coining a separate term for a nomadic space camp. I'm assuming they're not hunting them either, in the classic sense, and either protecting colonists or scientists from them. Even then though, I suspect that it would be more of a science outpost, mobile or not, with a military contingent for protection, they are studying the organisms, and that's a very real option too. We mostly don't need permanence for a lot of our near-term operations, in the short term we mostly need it for researching how to do long-term operations, but a big find like those alien organisms, or a bubbling mud pool on Mars full of life, is exactly the sort of thing that could result in a crash project to get science teams there quickly and basically just keep dumping supplies and follow-ups there until it crossed some threshold into being a settlement. Same thing applies for a hasty crash project to defend us from an incoming giant asteroid, as opposed to mining one. Manufacturing in orbit is an option too. For example, you might want something like a crystal or semiconductor that is very useful for industry but only properly forms in microgravity. This is different to a facility for building giant space-based solar panels or solar shades and mirrors, where you only do it there because that's where they end up and the assumption is that you're getting resources off the moon for building them, rather than from Earth, for less fuel cost. That implies a fairly significant settlement on the moon too, and more likely the initial one. Though another purpose to consider is just multi-purpose, and indeed that will almost inevitably be true, however in that same vein of thought, just as you can have a space settlement with multiple major focuses, hotel, farm, and factory all equally primary, you can also have a purpose requiring multiple initial facilities, like deciding to engage in global heating or cooling by use of orbital mirrors and shades, and that involving simultaneous construction of a moon base for bulk raw materials, a factory in orbit of the moon for launching them to orbit at our L1, and a mobile crewed space base that repairs them. Another reason for building a settlement in space might be to avoid persecution for religious or philosophical beliefs. This has motivated many settlement building efforts on Earth, the Massachusetts Pilgrims being a notable example. These groups often have a lot of resources and willpower, which is handy for settling, 
but I don't see this being the first space settlement, just a common purpose for forming future ones. The moon is our last but not least entry, as I would actually bet on it being the first settlement and a multi-purpose one. Moon-based tourism is likely to be a fairly big industry, and has obvious research advantages including far-side telescopes and enormous potential for industry, see our Moon series episodes, Moon-based concepts, Industrializing the Moon, Battle for the Moon, Return to the Moon, Moon Industrial Complex, Moon Crater Cities, and Moon Megacity. So that seems to leave us space hotels and of course multi-purpose facilities as our likely candidates for anything not on a planet, and I can't see a space station over the Moon or Mars, or a cyclostation between Earth and another planet or the belt, without other settlements at those places already, except as we otherwise discussed. Again though, they might be built in tandem, multiple stations for a purpose as opposed to multi-purpose. That takes us from where and why into what they would be like, and two big contenders that both rather straddle the notion of multi-purpose and multi-facility, your principal spaceport in orbit of Earth and your primary spaceport down on the Moon. It is very easy to do a space elevator on the Moon, due to its lower gravity, and you also have the option of a mass driver on the Earth or the Moon, and that is also easier to build on the Moon. Whether on the Moon or Earth, a settlement attached to a space elevator will be shaped like a dumbbell. This is akin to how a settlement on a bridge over a big river might grow two large lobes on either bank, and a skinny part on the actual bridge. Sometimes one side gets settled almost exclusively, and other times it sprawls almost as two separate towns, or even as two genuinely separate towns which might even have different governments or even be part of different nations. I think in the case of a space elevator, being in the range of thousands of miles or kilometers in length, unlike with your typical bridge of less than a single mile or kilometer, a sort of twin settlement seems more likely. So too, you might get settlements on the elevator, just as many bridges often did have buildings on themselves. Because the very nature of such facilities makes travel to space and the settlement vastly cheaper, especially in bulk, they definitely fit the bill for a first settlement if there wasn't one before them, and that rather depends on technology. If tomorrow someone comes up with a cheap way to mass manufacture graphene tethers of arbitrary length without significantly sacrificing tensile strength, then by year's end we would be seeing funding pushed through Congress or angel investors throwing in. It's too big a strategic and economic edge not to make a move on and move quickly at that. Now a spaceport at the top of a space elevator is a fairly specific thing, so we should not assume the first settlement would be the first big spaceport, but it is important to understand that, by and large, getting to low orbit from Earth's surface or back down from it are fundamentally very different processes than moving through space in general is. This is why we often joke that interstellar vessels can crash onto a planet, because it is very unlikely they'd be built to land on one, instead launching from a space dock to begin with and orbiting their destination, then using atmosphere craft to send folks down. Now we may end up with cheap spacecraft that can do atmospheric takeoff easily too, we are never more than one paradigm shifting technology away from having to discard our major assumptions about near and mid-term space development. Barring that though, you would expect people walking in space to be coming and going from Earth to an orbital spaceport, or a parallel structure like an orbital ring or space tower, in different craft than will take them to the moon or some other facility that is not in low Earth orbit. 
and indeed you might have folks making a stopover even before going to other low orbit facilities. Much as freighters and airplanes don't stop at houses along their path to a port to make individual deliveries, it is fairly easy to imagine a space station slowly building and upgrading its way into being a settlement, and I'm not really sure if we need to be having long-term residents there for one to count as a settlement or what qualifies as long-term. The ISS is not a settlement, but that point might be more strained in the case of McMurdo, the Antarctic station whose population fluctuates between 250 and 1250 people throughout the winter through summer, it's been there since the 1950s, an entire lifetime, and manned continuously with nearly a hundred buildings, and I think we would have some permanent residents there by now if not for the treaty basically banning non-scientific personnel. Tourists are allowed on the continent for days of excursion but then have to return to their cruise ship overnight, because of that treaty. But people routinely stay there a year or more and the longest total stay I know of by an individual in Antarctica, Ken Blakelock, who passed away a couple years back, comes to a total of 14 years spent between various stays beginning in 1947, and that record was finished up a quarter of a century ago so someone might have passed it by now. It has been almost half a century since Emilio Palma was born as the first human in Antarctica in 1978 on the continent itself, a couple other folks were born on neighboring islands much earlier, and at least 10 others have been born on the continent since then, so I would make the argument that we could call those permanent outposts in Antarctica settlements and most of why they aren't is down to treaty restrictions and trying to avoid calling them settlements. That said, I don't think folks would be rushing to move to Antarctica to raise a family if that treaty changed, but I'm not sure they would be rushing to space to do it either if we didn't give space a lot more glamour and didn't tend to discuss space colonization as a win not if type of thing, and nobody really talks about colonizing Antarctica which is a shame in my opinion, maybe we'll do an episode on it someday. Minor tangent but a thing to remember is that nobody really expects the current space treaty to still remain in place in a couple centuries. It's very much a placeholder and seems to me that it was always intended as such, but the Antarctic Treaty is just over 60 years old, whereas the first landing on the Antarctic mainland was 200 years ago, and the first South Pole expedition over a century ago, and the first base 124 years ago, almost a whole lifetime before that treaty got signed. So for all we know, we could see some treaty like that a lifetime after we got our first moon base, a treaty banning people actually living in orbit. I certainly hope not, but that could result in some parallel to McMurdo and its cousins, things that aren't settlements but arguably mostly by technicality. I think this matters because as I list some obvious traits a real settlement should have, many would be debatable. For instance, it need not have a judge present at it. Certainly many settlements in our own past did not, and that was before we had Zoom, and one of my friends who is a judge has been arraigning people remotely for almost a decade now, and we're in rural Ohio so I doubt he set a record. So the same idea might apply for doctors, lawyers, and maybe even grade school teachers too. That has to be weighed against remembering that such remote options also limit the pressure to establish such a settlement too. Automation is handy and while a space hotel probably needs alcohol, it does not necessarily need a bartender. Nonetheless, some of the obvious force features of a space settlement or lunar or Martian one would be a pub for dinner, drinks, and socializing. McMurdo has three bars incidentally, and I gather has often generated concern the folks stationed there are prone to drinking problems, which isn't hard to believe. 
This could be a cafeteria instead, and it could be a hidden distillery making moonshine, and people might be using the garden or hydroponics facility for growing other substances, officially or not, but I would argue that any settlement does need some social hubs, and which types can blend together depends on cultural and social norms. For example, you would tend to expect a church or chapel at a settlement too, and historically that's often a social location too, but drinking at a temple or church is very much a no-no for some, and perfectly fine for others. While church itself might be a totally forbidden, or mandatory piece of settlement, depending on who commissioned it. So again, it is hard to say this or that thing must be present. Even an enormous O'Neill cylinder, way beyond the scope of a forced space settlement, might not have something as seemingly necessary as a maternity ward, simply because since we had no children born in space, we might have found out low gravity is very bad for pregnancies and kids need to be grown in ectogenesis tubes for safe incubation, or that might become the preferred method for people in general. As to size, I think we can assume any early space settlement will need gravity. A moon base might need to supplement gravity by having a rotating ring of base, or habitat section anyway, what we call a rotor city, as might even Mars, but maybe their gravity will be enough for humans and our basic ecology. For a space base, if we want Earth-like gravity, that usually puts us at a diameter of 450 meters or 1500 feet, because that's the width that allows us to generate 1G of Earth gravity without spinning the habitat faster than 2 times per minute. We are pretty confident that at 2 RPM or less, there is no nausea for folks, but we might be able to do faster and thus smaller. For context, if you spin yourself in a circle over the course of 30 seconds, you probably won't feel sick, that's 2 RPM, and indeed you might do that while just moving around your kitchen grabbing various components while fixing dinner. If that rate of rotation caused nausea, I don't think you see so many home kitchens laid out with an island behind that you have to rotate yourself toward. But if you're in a desk chair that can spin and you feel like doing so, you could see how many seconds per rotation you can do before feeling a bit queasy. It is a bit different in a space habitat since the air and room you're in are turning with you, but you are under acceleration, just like when we're going around a sharp corner in a car. That spin is what is simulating gravity for its inhabitants. And what works for humans needs to work for cats and dogs and lab rats and probably some pollinator species too. I don't think it would be a settlement without pets and gardens, or at least a conservatory, any more than if there were no children there, but a ring that is 450 meters in diameter or 1500 feet and maybe 20 meters or 60 some feet wide are not an unlikely size for your smaller habitats, even on interplanetary spaceships, and that would represent almost 3 hectares of living space, and that diameter allows multiple floors, or at least 10 floors without a big shift of gravity, and that definitely makes for a settlement, especially if you're principally importing food or growing it hydroponically and hyperdensely. Such a ring should have no difficulty supporting a couple hundred folks, or honestly a good deal more, especially for bringing supplies in, and it's more that this is the minimum size for comfortable gravity to the best of our current knowledge. I think we would also have to be talking about something being a settlement if its standing population exceeds Dunbar's number, 150 to 160 people. Your world, or habitat anyway, is a long tunnel about a kilometer and a half long, or nine-tenths of a mile, and with some other corridor above or below for other levels, maybe ramps up them or even spirals, you go for a jog and you jog past your front door a few times or your neighbor or the local store. 
they could be made wider to have more corridors or even a grand boulevard with a garden down the middle, but we're talking about our first space settlement so we're talking small. Your windows open to a site that rotates twice a minute, that might be cool or it might be nauseating to watch the night sky spin around that quickly. There's probably a large central region at the middle of the ring with much less gravity too. Now, many folks don't want gravity in space as a tourist or a researcher, that's presumably why they visit, but being able to float around the zero-grav racquetball court or lab is different than sleeping in zero-grav all the time, which if you've seen space station sleeping bags does not look fun in any way compared to maybe just lower gravity. And that's not a problem on the moon for instance or Mars, though their gravity might be too low for long-term survivability. It definitely is enough for plumbing to work and for folks to be able to sleep normally without needing to be restrained. I think we would see that ring on the moon too, not just in Earth's orbit. There's no air on the moon so there's no friction slowing down such a ring. You have to tilt the floors a bit to keep the combination of centrifugal force and lunar gravity perpendicular to the floor, but it's not much. Simulating normal gravity on the moon, you would be tilted at about 80 degrees off the moon's surface or 10 degrees off the ring's rotational plane. It also lets you shave about 10 meters or 30 feet off your ring diameter. Lower spin gravity component, fewer rotations per minute for a given diameter. Mars is a lot more, 68 degrees off surface or 22 degrees off plane of rotation. And you can trim about 30 meters or 100 feet off your minimum ring diameter. Unlike space habitats, rotocities on plants are maybe best done as rings. Making them wider, like cylinders, saves construction material per unit of living area, but you end up needing stacked slanted rings on a planet. It is worth noting that rings of this diameter are moving around at their edge at freeway speeds and then some, 47 meters per second or 104 miles per hour. You could bail out of one, dropping out the floor so to speak, but you'd really want to have an airbag to cushion your landing. The good news is, the lower gravity gives you more time to fall and brace yourself, you might be able to get away with dragging and tumbling to slow your lateral speed, or to manually activate a tiny portable airbag around a CO2 cartridge, that might end up as a sport on the moon too. You can bring the diameter and spin rates down on any of these if lower than Earth gravity is desired and usable, and it is very likely we would intentionally build a second inner ring on a space station that had lower gravity equal to Mars, 38% Earth normal, to test how people and organisms failed at that gravity before going to Mars, a Terran ring and a Martian ring. Indeed you might only build that ring first, so there is a good chance our first space settlement would be a ring habitat of Martian gravity not Earth's, in which case it can get away with a diameter of 38% of an Earth gravity ring, with 38% the living area we calculated earlier, and maybe less too, since you can't really have as many levels stacked together. What's here? Well, keep in mind that whether we're talking about a space station, moon base, or Mars base, any bits people live in are not necessarily like those they walk in or store stuff in. Indeed, they might not even be nearby. When you need to travel, you follow a tether to a piece of equipment and a pressurized pod that are a kilometer away from your main station, perhaps a telescope that needs to be away from noise or, alternatively, you might take a rover to the satellite outpost. Even if you decide you want to store your water under some pressure and gravity, you probably just need a slow rotating low gravity tank under minimal pressure. You might want that as extra radiation shielding but you don't have to spin it, 
just put it around as a second non-spinning shield, requiring far less structural material. Other storage probably would tend to be off the central axis a little, or in Storage Depot's planet side, scattered as appropriate and maybe connected by tunnels. Assume in any lunar or Martian environment that full gravity is where homes and office or school environments are, places that need it because people will be there for many hours, and it might be that just sleeping and exercising in full gravity is enough, so that you can use the normal pressurized tunnels between storage sites and launch pads and so forth. Planet-side settlements, or moon-side, look different than orbital ones, and same for buried inside an asteroid or in some crater on the feeble moons of Mars whose escape velocity is just 25 miles per hour or 41 kilometers per hour. See our episode on asteroid mining or colonizing series for more discussion of that. So is the first space settlement a ring habitat in low Earth orbit, or what is the counterweight of a space elevator high above even geostationary orbit, or in a lunar lava tube or crater? Or is it a Mars base, or a mobile floating sky town on Venus? See Colonizing Venus for more on that. Those essentially have to be a settlement, even if not necessarily a permanent one, just because the mission timeline requires months not days like the Moon permitted. I don't think we will see a genuine settlement until after we have a permanent Moon base, and then it will depend on gravity and biology. If lunar gravity turns out to be no big deal for prolonged stays, then we don't need to check if Martian gravity, which is twice as much as that on the Moon, is enough for human comfort, and we just expand that Moon base far easier without gravity issues, and so I think it would be our first settlement. If gravity was an issue, then I think our first settlement becomes orbital, because we now need to check what the effects of living in the equivalent of Martian gravity are by building a ring habitat before we send humans to live there for a year, and certainly before anything which might legitimately call a permanent settlement is built. So that would be my second choice, especially as we might build one before we did a permanent moon base or in conjunction with it, though I think not. The likelihood of our first serious space settlement being on Mars has much lower odds, in my opinion, than a moon settlement or Earth orbital settlement, but higher odds than Venus or a near-Earth asteroid or an interplanetary cycler to Mars but not by a ton. It really all depends on gravity, biology, and technological rollouts relevant to getting to space or making money in space. Human enthusiasm for a project does matter too, and a Mars settlement fascinates us as an option which is why I would put it as a strong third if well below a first settlement on the moon or in orbit, just well above the others because we currently want it more and a major nation or billionaire deciding to throw everything at getting that done could change the equation too. As to when, I will be an optimist and say that within a generation that stational base will get started, though I think the settlement would count as a massive upgrade on an original, probably in stages like a new space hotel, or a new science wing, or a new module for this or that country or mega corporation, maybe even this decade for a first beginning, unless someone decides to salvage and massively overhaul the ISS, in which case the start would technically have been two decades ago. That would be a questionable date though, since this wouldn't be a settlement at the official founding date but when a city officially began is always a debatable matter, and the story of the Pilgrims doesn't begin at Plymouth Rock, nor end when the settlement is a dozen times bigger and one of many, there and elsewhere. I think we'll get to see that first settlement, by anyone's standards, founded this century, and I think many of us watching this episode today will live to see it. Of course, living in a space settlement has a lot more challenges than we covered today, 
and we will look at some more of those next week as we explore mental health away from Earth and staying sane in space. We were talking a lot today about gravity and simulating gravity with spin and how a better knowledge of how it affects our biology will let us pick our path into space colonization, and something folks often ask is if we know spin gravity works, and the answer is yes, that's actually what makes our astronauts float on the space station, they spin around the planets and the outward spin gravity cancels out the gravity of Earth downward. If you were on a tower at the space station's height, you'd feel almost the same gravity as down here and fall if you stepped off it, which might be an exciting sport in the future. Gravity is an interesting topic, as it is a subject we still find mysterious, but also the one that we studied first in the field of physics, way back in Newton's time. As such, it is also a great place to start learning more about physics and science in general, and our friends over at Brilliance have got some great astrophysics courses including one on gravity and the expansion of the universe. Physics is one of those topics that many people find both fascinating and intimidating, even compared to other sciences, but it shouldn't be and the folks over at Brilliance are working hard to make math and science easier to learn by introducing more interactive, hands-on courses like their scientific thinking course. These topics often seemed hard in the past because there were so few interactive options compared to other topics, but now Brilliant makes it easier for anyone to learn, be it the basics or advanced materials like astrophysics. A better knowledge of math, science, and computer science can not only be enlightening personally, but a road to greater personal success. Be a lifelong learner and let Brilliance be your partner on that journey. With Brilliance you can learn at your own pace, learn on the go, and learn something new. To get started for free, visit Brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur or click on the link in the description, and the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. So this week we were talking space settlements and we'll be talking about the challenges of living in them next week. And while writing the announcements on this episode, I found myself wondering more about the day-to-day life there, and my county's fair was going on at the same time. For those who live or grew up in rural areas where they have these, you probably know what a big deal those are and it got me wondering what sort of equivalents we might have at a distant colony and what sort of competitions there'd be. Your tractor pull or best vegetable equivalents, maybe rocket pulls or hydroponics, maybe a topic for an episode someday and I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. Also, congratulations to my wife Sarah on getting first place in the fair on her petunias, first place also on her turnips, and second place on our honey entry, which isn't bad considering it's only our second year doing bees. We'll be closing out August for the channel this Sunday, the 28th at 4pm Eastern Time with our monthly livestream Q&A, and as usual my lovely co-host Sarah will be reading your questions off from the chat, I hope you'll join us then. After that we will head on into September to look at how we go about staying sane while exploring and colonizing space. Then we will be exploring a new space launch system, the Tethered Ring, which offers a potentially cheap and practical way to get lots of people and cargo into space and around the planet, on Thursday, September 8th. After that we have our Sci-Fi Sunday episode on September 11th, Alien Impostors and Doppelgangers. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help support future episodes, please visit our website IsaacArthur.net for ways to donate, or become a show patron over at Patreon. 
Those and other options like our awesome social media forums for discussing futuristic concepts can be found in the links in the description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!